Hey man, what's up? I should not be awake right now. I feel terrible. I barely got any sleep last night. I'm like, I'm like the living dead right now. Hey, what's up, Tony? Hello, hello, Tony. Hello, Channing. Hello, Colleen. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> what what time is it where you are? You're in um in Ho Chi Minh City, right? Yeah, I'm in Ho Chi Minh City. It's uh 11 p.m. now. Yeah. And are you like typically a night owl? Like, what kind of hours do you work? I usually uh, stay up at late until midnight and okay. then uh, go to work at around that hour. So uh, this is the last hour of my usual day. But for today, I think we can go a little bit further than that. It's totally fine. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate you making the time. Channing, I, I pitched Tony. I was like, hey, can we, we can do the episode anytime between like 1 to you know 3 p.m. Pacific time. Because I'm just an arrogant American and just assumes everyone right. lives on Pacific time. Everyone should get on Tony's our time. like, I'm in, I'm in Vietnam. That's going to be like, <laughs> like yeah. 3 a.m. for me. Like, I can't do that. <laughs> yeah, but I am glad that uh, it's, it's uh, 9 a.m. for you, right? Are you also a night, uh, yeah, a night O or early bird? I'm like a both. I have a, an mm. excellently healthy sleep schedule where I stay up super late and then I wake up really early. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Get like four or five hours of sleep every night. It's actually, it's horrible. I wow. don't recommend it. <laughs> wow. You're still doing that now? You're still doing it now? I, um, I remember you mentioned that in one of the earlier episodes, but still now you're still doing it. I've got a Whoop, which is like, do you see this wristband? I don't know. It's kind of like a fitness device, like a Fitbit or an Apple Watch that like mm. records all your stats. Mm. And I can go through and I can see like my average sleep every week or every month. And it's horrible. So mm. like yesterday I got four and a half hours of sleep. What? This month I'm at <laughs> this month I'm averaging um what am I averaging? We're in a group. Channing's in my whoop group with me, along with his girlfriend and some of my friends. I'm averaging five hours and eleven minutes of sleep. No, man. <laughs> you it's I know. Just... <laughs> five hours and five in July. And I I don't even have any sort of like bragging, like, oh I'm I, I can't say like this is like hustle porn. I'm not like staying up late to work. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> I'm it's, actually very it's chill with my workout. My theory, yeah. my theory is that Cortland doesn't have a very good ability to sense the way that his body feels, and so the negative effects of getting terrible sleep just don't immediately mm. affect him. Maybe or maybe it's just nature. I guess. I think so, but it's still not good. I and Channing's absolutely right. Like it took me. I didn't realize until I was like 31 that if I eat a lot of food, I get sleepy. Like it mm. takes me a while to like connect what's going on, <laughs> what's going on in like my environment to my body because I get too scientific with it. And I'm like, right. I don't know. How do I know this is why I get sleepy? There's like, do you notice when you put your hand over fire that it burns? <laughs> I figured that was going to be a big problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Tony, I'm glad you're on the show. You were one of my favorite indie hackers in the last year. Um, Thank you. Your story is crazy. A year ago, almost exactly a year ago, last August, you tweeted, uh, you penned a tweet. You said, after seven years working as a developer, I quit my job to pursue my dream, to build software I love and make a living out of it. So that was like a year ago that you quit your job and you pretty much just had a dream. You only had like a thousand followers on Twitter at the time. You had a handful of like side projects really. And they were only doing like, you know, a couple hundred dollars in revenue. And now just one year later, you're at 50,000 followers on Twitter. You have multiple products, I think three main ones that are bringing in a total of close to $20,000 a month in revenue. Mm. Uh, that's awesome, man. That's like one <laughs> of the fastest sprints I've ever seen an indie hacker make. Yeah, I think I got lucky uh, here and there a few times in the past one year. But I also learned a lot in the process as well. So I'm glad uh, things are working out for me. <laughs> What's the cost of living in Vietnam? Like if you're making like $20,000 a month, you know, as this oh. like indie hacker just working from home, like how well can you live off that? Incredibly cheap. Uh, in Vietnam, I think I used to live here for like less than 1K a month. So when I was uh, about to quit my job, I was thinking that at least I can survive in Vietnam for 1K a month. And now I have a few hundred dollars MRR. So I, I'm pretty sure I can do this. Right, but and and now I do much more than that, and and also living in Vietnam, so it's yeah, that's ridiculous. At three k a month, you can live uh, somewhat like a middle income uh, average household, and at ten k, you will be uh, like a luxury lifestyle. On your tweet that you penned, where you said I'm going to quit my job, you also mentioned 
that you have no wife and no kids. So on top of the background <laughs> cost of living in Vietnam, you also don't have to pay for a family. Yeah, yeah, that that's one of the big reason uh, to encourage me as well. Like, because I, a lot of other India girls I know have wives and kids. It make the it make the decision a, a lot harder for them. So for me, I just want to give people a context of what where I'm at to see uh, the full picture of of uh, my situation. It will be different to everyone. So if you have kids and you have a family to feed, it will be it will be uh, different, you know. So yeah, I was pretty much free when I quit my job, and I have a lot of ideas and a few traction, initial traction. So yeah, uh, I think that's that contributed a lot to my succeed today. So let's talk about a few of your products real quick, because you've got a lot of them. Uh, I think we'll maybe just limit our focus to three of them today, because it's like it's confusing when we talk about too many. Um, one of them, I'm yeah. a user, I'm a paying customer of two of your products. So one of them is called Snapper. Like literally the word X snapper. Am I pronouncing it right? Yeah, it's right. Yeah. Like snapping. Uh, yeah. <laughs> snapper. It's super simple. Yeah. It's like a, a screenshot tool. So every time I take a screenshot on my Mac, instead of just copying the image to my clipboard, I get this beautiful interface where the image gets this cool gradient background that I can change. And I get all these like superpower features. Like I can select the text from the image if I really want to. And it saves into a special folder. And I can drag and drop it anywhere I want. And I can add rounded corners and a drop shadow. And snapper just made $4,200 last month. And I think you just launched it yesterday. Then you've got Black Magic, a Twitter <laughs> growth tool. It's almost like a hodgepodge of these really cool individual tools that you made for Twitter. And you just like stuck them all together. And I got that too. So every mm -hmm. time I go to Twitter, I can open up Black Magic. I can see all this extra information about everybody's profile who I'm looking at, their best tweets, who's following them, their best engagement. I can see cool information about every part of my Twitter. If I go to my notifications, I can see which of my people who've notified me are like have been following me for a long time or the recent followers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Blackmagic is making something like $10,000 a month. And then you've got DevUtils, mm -hmm. the only one of your apps that I don't use yet. And that's basically just a giant toolbox of tools for developers. How much money is DevUtils making? Uh, it's average out about 4K a month. Okay. It's not recurrent, so <laughs> it's dependent on the month. Right. Yeah. And then you add all these things up together and you get to $18,000, $20,000 a month in revenue. Yeah, close to twenty. yeah. <laughs> Crazy. That's a lot of ideas. Yeah. Well, you nailed it at introducing my products. I, I was thinking about how to introduce it, but <laughs> wow, that's that's very uh, a good description of Blackmagic and Snapper and DevUtils as well. So I really like to work on multiple products at the same time is my one of my uh, life motive to build a diversified portfolio of uh, multiple products, uh, you know, just for safety. Just if one go down, I have the other ones to bring the revenue. I wonder about your like childhood though. Like you're not just like making these apps that are incredibly successful. You're also like designing them. Every one of them is beautiful. You're super ambitious. I mean, to build this many things, like you've got to be a hard worker. So I want to know like, like what kind of parents did you have? Like, where does this, where does this drive come from? My generation in Vietnam uh, is the first generation that experienced peace. So before that, uh, my parents were born in uh, after the war, so they are all very poor. <laughs> my dad was a construction worker and my mom just sells stuff at home. Uh, the point where I started to be passionate about technology and computers was at high school. My parents uh, got me a computer and then I started to learn to code with Pascal and Visual Basics at the time. And uh, well, before that, I was addicted to games. I think like you, uh, uh, Colin. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm so curious about Vietnam. Like how common of an experience was it for like, you know, you were on the internet as a kid, you're, you're learning programming, you're playing video games. How common was that in Vietnam at the time? Like, Well, first of all, not, not many kids had computers in the first place. And then uh, for people who have computers, they don't really get into programming like me. I remember joining some programming competitions and uh, from uh, from all of Vietnam, from my city, there are only three people. So me and two other people from, from my hometown. So I would say not many people have access to the internet. And also if uh, from those people who have access, not many people are into programming. So uh, it's one of my advantages as well. Are you in, are you in North or South Vietnam or were you when you grew up? I was 
I was in the middle. Right in the middle. Yeah. What was from Hue City? You mentioned like you were kind of the first generation that grew up with like no war. You know, you're like part of that generation. Like, what made your generation different from the generation that came before you? Because like as an American, it's like we learn very little history about Vietnam. We know very little about. Yeah. I mean, it's like it wasn't even part of my curriculum. Like growing, like anything I know about Vietnam, like I've read subsequently as an adult. And like obviously, there's like the war in Vietnam. It's like a very controversial topic, and I'm sure you have like different opinions on it maybe than people in the West. So I'm curious to hear like what what was it like being part of your generation, and like how does that contrast with like your parents' generation?、Uh, my dad was a soldier, and then he became a construction construction worker. So at the time, it is the North Vietnam and the South Vietnam.、Uh, it was a difficult time for everyone, I think. Uh, so my parents was not an exception.、Uh, they were poor, really poor. Then、uh, me and my brother were born poor as well.、Uh, later on, they figured out a way to escape the the poor. So when I was ten and above, our our family started to get、uh, better. But before that, my childhood was、uh, really really poor. <laughs> and、uh, those people from the previous generation, they had to work very hard on very uh, physical uh, heavy works. To provide for our generation, so yeah, it was a difficult time for sure. Your father was a poor construction worker in this period in Vietnam, and it seems like he didn't have a lot of other friends locally who were also working on、uh, doing coding and working with computers. What did your parents think that you were doing? Did they think that the, that you were wasting your time? Did they encourage you? Like, how did you stay on this path toward doing something that you know well, maybe there wasn't a vocabulary? <laughs> The culture around that being like a yeah, they absolutely <laughs> excellent question. I think they right now they absolutely have no idea what I do. They <laughs>、uh, only know I I I work on computer and on internet, and that's it. Do you at least show them the money、um, that you're making? Yeah, do they know like, how successful you are? Uh, they do, <laughs> <laughs> but but they don't know what I, I I do for money. Uh, so they only they know that now I don't work for companies anymore. And I work for myself, and I I make money. So they're like Tony. Are you doing anything illegal? <laughs>、uh, I think they.、Uh, uh, no, I, I don't think they think that. <laughs> But、uh, when I was young, I was I was trying to convince them that、uh, if you can buy me a computer, and buy me this CD and that CD, I I, I remember that was a window install CD or some kind of a tool CD that allows me to fix the computer without going to the re, to repair shops. I told them if you if you do this for me and do that for me, I will be、uh, working on computers and and I will no longer no longer play games. <laughs> I was really addicted to games, and somehow they are convinced, and that's how I get my first computers and、uh, <laughs> and it changed my it changed my life. I think. Yeah. So you eventually you learn how to code. Yeah. You stop playing as many video games, I presume. Get addicted to coding, which is kind of a game in a way. It's got like that addictive feedback loop. Yeah. Um. What what company was it that you worked at for seven years that you eventually quit last year? Oh,、uh, I worked for three companies, and I I feel lucky that I worked for three types of company companies each time. So my first company was an outsourced company. We do outsourced work. The second one was a startup.、Uh, they did not go well. <laughs>、uh, the company went bankrupt.、Mm. And then I move on to the third company, which is a big corporate company.、Uh, it's Gendesk, if you know about it. I think it's okay to mention here.、Uh, it was a big company in in Singapore. So being able to participate in the work of all three types of companies, I think I I gain some knowledge in the industry that a normal person who work on a corporate、uh, since the beginning of the career to the end. Who doesn't experience the the works in an outsource and in a startup? There there are things that、uh, we learn on each type of company. So I'm glad that I had that experience, and、uh, I I never regret working for those companies at all. I think it's background and knowledge that I I can learn in order to build up the advantages that I have when I quit my job to to do all, to do my own thing. Yeah, I'm gonna fanboy for a second.、Uh, Cortland mentioned that he's got. Two of your products. I bought Snapper to make for screenshots, and I posted a tweet <laughs> storm just yesterday using it, and thought it was awesome. 
So clearly you've learned oh, wow. really amazing <laughs> skill sets at these different companies. Uh, like you're, you're an excellent designer. You're clearly a competent developer at these different companies. Were you always just doing the same thing or like, how did you get so well-rounded? Yeah. What did you learn at the companies that you worked at that gave you the advantages that you have now? Yeah. After I graduated, I was as a front-end engineer. So a lot of front-end and the front-end back then is not like front-end today. It's more like CDS animation, you know, doing doing the stuff that is pixel perfect. Right. And uh, I was doing that for a few years. And uh, during that, I learned about design and, and UX UI. I, I'm not necessarily learn, but I kind of get the feeling and get a sense of design, you know, what is good, what is not good. So that was uh, the first company, uh, front-end engineers. And then uh, a second engineer, I, uh, the second company, I kind of worked is a mix of front end and back end. We were working on a Rails, a Ruby, Ruby on Rails, and uh, that gave me the experience as well. At the third company, I worked solely on the back end side, and I was able to touch on some of the biggest systems in the in the company, and we were serving uh, users from all around the world. So it was a it was a different experience at each time, and. Um, Besides my full-time job, I also have a lot of side projects. As a, I was doing freelance work when I was in college, doing Android apps. And I, I have a side project where I, I work with PHP. Uh, uh, doing on the back-end side, I work with a lot of other technologies that I do not have the chance to practice in my full-time job. I do that all in my side project. So basically, a few first years of my career is all learning and, and, and 100% focusing on being a good engineer. Where did you get this dream to be an indie hacker? Because, I mean, a lot of people are happy to just work at jobs their whole life, right? You could have just been a good engineer and worked at companies until you were 40. But like last year, here you are tweeting, like, you can't wait to quit, right? Or you did quit. Where did that, where did that itch come from? Yeah, it's, it's amazing how it changed so fast. I, like five years ago, I was dreaming about being an an excellent engineer working in a large complex system for a big corporation. <laughs> now I just want to build software that bring value to people. And that's it. After I graduate, I kind of get into the flow of all the people around me who always want to get into a good company with a good pay and, and, and make money. So I kind of forget about everything else at the time and kind of get into the flow to get in the rat race. You know, and um, uh, when I was in high school, I made a lot of window apps. So window, uh, Windows application. And I, I was having fun back then. I did not sell for any money, but I was having fun. So in the last few years of my career, I kind of remember back into those days. And I feel like I, I enjoyed that more. I enjoy building applications that serve the end users. Uh, and provide value for them more than I want to be an expert in, let's say, some back-end engineering role. So, and it started to grow on me uh, over and over again in the last few years of my career. And then when COVID hit, I was forced to be home alone all day. It really hit me hard in the feeling when, you know, you cannot go anywhere, no nobody to talk to. Yeah. Um, so, so that combined with the uh, with the urge of, of uh, going back to build uh, build apps and and stuff, it made me think of uh, going on a new journey. <laughs> and uh, at the same time, I think I learned about indie hackers and community and Twitter as well. So, I, I feel like there's an urge <laughs> to to quit my job and uh, and pursue this. I sometimes feel like I'm unemployable. Like technically, I work at Stripe now, but this is the first <laughs> like actual real job I've had. And I feel like a lot of indie hackers are the same. Mm. Like, Channing, you don't really want to be employed. Like, you've had jobs before, but you're never that happy at your jobs. I had jobs with a very specific uh, goal to get out of them. Yeah. Like, I, like there's never a point where you're like, I love working this job. You know, like, what you were like selling copy machines for a while, and you got a job as a developer. Uh, but I'm, I'm kind of the same. But for me, it's like, I just don't like the idea of not being able to work on whatever I want. I have another theory on top of all of that for what. Mm. convinces people or persuades people to try to move beyond going and working for the man. And that is you build something for yourself and you get a taste of the freedom. You get a taste of, you mm. know, sort of getting, building something with your own brain, 
seeing people pay money for it, et cetera. And I see that before you quit your most recent job in like May of last year, you actually built and sold a product on microacquire for like two grand. Was it called drivestats.io? Yeah. And that was before you quit. Yes. So yes. it seems like this itch yeah. was there and you were even, you know, finding some indie success before you were free from the, yeah. from the nine to five. I mean, I think that's the smartest thing to do. Like yeah, that, start a side yeah. project before you quit your job and just see what it's like. Yeah, that's absolutely, absolutely accurate. And um, uh, the taste of having customers, direct customer that you serve directly is very different than what I have in the corporation where you just tweak a little cock in the machine and it takes so long to reach to the end, to the end users. And it, it, it grow on me a lot in the last year. Uh, and the COVID made it happen. <laughs> so. so you're at this point now, you've made a side project, you've gotten a taste of freedom a little bit, and you really want to quit your job. But like, obviously, you didn't have you didn't have a successful project that was like spitting out cash, you didn't yeah. have any of the stuff that you have now. Like, what do you what do you do in a situation where you want to quit your job, but you're not, you're not like, you know, totally set ready to do that? I uh, so in my case, I set a target to quit my job when at least I have uh, one or two K MRR, or I have a very clear path to reach that point in a year. I have savings, so it, it gives me a good runway if I quit my job without any income at all. But I don't want to take that risk. It's, it's a little bit too much for me. So in my case, I was seeing some, some traction from my Twitter audience. And also Blackmagic at, at that time, I think it has 300 or 400 MRR which is enough for me to boost the confidence that I will be able to double this in a year, at least double this. So double it will be 800 uh, MRR, right. which is close to the, uh, to, to the ramen profit in Vietnam, you know, mm -hmm. and then I move back to Vietnam and it should be good, should be good. And so this was Black Magic was, was at 400 MRR and at that time you didn't have any revenue coming in from separate projects yet? Uh, I do have revenue from deals, but it's really low. I think uh, less than $100 or maybe $200 a month. And it's not even recurrent. So I remember uh, there's a, f a period, three months or two or three months, I haven't worked on it at all. Like I lost uh, the, the motivation to work on it because it, th there's no traffic to the website, no customers, <laughs> no sale, no revenue. So uh, I, I, stopped, I stopped working on it to find new ideas. But then... Uh, because I, I use my product a lot and then I keep coming back to add new feature here and there just for me. And then somehow it's, uh, there's a few customers out there. Then the app uh, just keep leaving. I, I don't shut it down. It just keep leaving because it, um, it's a downloadable app. I don't need to, I don't, I don't have a lot of maintenance costs for that. So um, even though I don't work on, on those, I still leave. And, uh, and later on, turnout is pick up. After I, I got popular on on Twitter, it's it picked up again, so it's good. So you wanted to to get to like one to two thousand dollars a month in revenue before you quit your job. What like how does that compare to your salary? Like were you making like a ton of money before that? Would that be like a huge downgrade for you, or would that be like just right on par? It's it's way it's like nothing. <laughs> so my last salary was last my last salary was ten uh, k uh, a month on average right. USD. Uh, it was in Singapore, but you know, conversion and stock option and stuff. So it's around average around 10k a month. So 1k is nothing. <laughs> I I don't think I can survive it in in Singapore, but in Vietnam maybe. Uh, but because I also work in in the companies for a few years, uh, three years, so I get a bunch of saving. I don't have wife, no kid, no wife, you know. So I only spend money for myself. Sometimes spend home uh, money home for my parents. That's it. So uh, I think the saving was uh, good and um, combined with the fact that uh, the Vietnam living cost is low and I, I was confident to do that. So you're like, like hardcore, ready to take the leap if you're willing to take like that big of a salary cut. Like you're, <laughs> you're willing to go down to like yeah, a tenth of your I, salary, move back to Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's uh, like $9,000 different every month, <laughs> but uh, I was having enough. I remember, so this is a confession, right? I remember around this time last year, around this time, uh, exactly last year, um, I already handed over my notice to quit my job. And every day I would, allow, I would go out for lunch alone because of COVID. And I would listen to Indie Hacker podcast uh, every day. 
to all of those stories about indie hackers making 10k a month and jumping on the podcast so learn a lot and uh, most of all a huge motiva- motivation for me that i will do it i can i can do it i can make it yeah so today is like dream come true for me <laughs> so uh, yeah that, that's that's my little confession <laughs> i'm glad we can inspire people to make irresponsible career decisions <laughs> <laughs> we're doing something right um no you know, motivation is good motivation is good yeah but but yeah uh, nike usd is a huge pay cut for me uh, back then but uh i i was confident so what <laughs> that i can get it up to 1k mr so, so what, what was your strategy like because now you've got like this array of different products from the beginning did you think like i'm gonna have like you know three different apps that i make and they're all gonna make a small amount of money and it's gonna add up to a lot or did you like think you're gonna make one like did you think it was gonna take you 10 years or, like one year like what was going through your head for what this process would actually look like at the time i had black magic which is the only product that i had recurrent revenue right so it had 300 mrr so i was very confident that I can bring it to 2k in about two years. Even before that, like when you first started like tinkering, I'm curious because like by that time you'd already come up with the idea for Black Magic, you had the idea for Dev Utils, like you oh. had, like already kind of like started working on these things. But even before that, like how did you decide like what your strategy was going to be as an indie hacker? Because I think it's pretty unique. Like most people don't have an array of different things. Like most people would be happy just to get one thing to work. At first, I only had one product. It's it's uh, Dev Utils. Uh, Deus, it was my first product and I was trying to make it work. I, I didn't have a, an idea about the black magic and snapper later on, but I just want to try to make it work. And one of the things that people told me, friends told me that I should do to get more sales on Deus is to jump on Twitter. Mm. So that's why I started to use Twitter, you know, and when I started to use Twitter, I started to see problems around Twitter. And that's how I created Black Magic, and it's just keep going, you know. Right. Uh, the, the Black Magic stuff started to get traction, which bring traffic back to my dev utils, and at the same time, I also building an audience and join into the movement of building in public, and and I think it's all all combined together like a compounded interest, compounded benefit. It uh, it bring the the all the products uh, up together. Yeah, in the beginning, I didn't. I had no idea what I will be doing next. I just want to to have more revenue for Dev YouTube. I noticed a pattern now that you say it. With if you started with Dev Utils, um, Black Magic is a browser extension for Twitter. Snapper is this mm. screenshot app that makes it so that you, in a sense, make images look good on social media apps like Twitter. And so there's like this domino effect mm. where you began working on a product. If you and then the kinds of problems that you ran into trying to build that product gave you the ideas for other products, right? It's like, you know, you want to build an audience for yeah. WTILs and then you build Black Magic. That's, you know, and you recognize that other people have that problem. Yeah. So one question <laughs> I have is these three products are successful. You know, are we to assume that you have a big graveyard of other ideas that seemed interesting <laughs> and that didn't get off the ground? Uh, I do, I do. I I have never counted them properly because I don't know when, at which point I should count them dead. But I have a few uh, failed projects. Like DevUtils was not my first macOS app. I was building an app to view logs. And that was the first attempt into indie hacking. Mm. And that was a huge failure. So coming from a an hardcore engineering mindset, right? I was trying to build an app that looks so good, not only from the functional, but only from the code base perspective, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I was uh, I, I was uh, writing unit tests, like coverage at around 80% or maybe 90% uh, of coverage, full unit test and uh, full architecture involved three different programming languages like Golang, Swift and JavaScript and doing so many stuff. But um, at some point, I started to lose motivation because it takes so long, it, uh, it took me like three months or four months to build and I have no prototype to show and I have nothing to show to the world. Only an escort project in my machine and that, that's it. And it's barely working. <laughs> I was, I remember trying so hard to make the app work. So it's a log viewer app, right? So I tried to make it work for terabyte size logs file. So really, really big log files, terabyte size. And it was a really hard problem. It, it's a hard problem and it took me a lot of time. 
So that was my first lesson. I, I ended up never released it and it was in my great job right now. So you had one yeah. lesson, you tried to build a product, it failed. You made some of the classic yeah. mistakes of working on building before you work on trying to make sure, you know, validate and see, get it out in front of other people. And well, it's like failed. the classic developer mistake of making like a, right. a really yeah. nerdy developer tool that like requires a ton of coding and <laughs> takes forever. Like, yeah, it can work. Yeah. I mean, like we've interviewed people who are like who sell developer tools and make a lot, but it's just a totally different type of business. And Tony, based on like the things you've done now, which are like way more visual, like I think it's a different type of motivation yeah. between like putting something out on Twitter where every time you add a feature, you can like tweet it and people will love it. Versus like doing this developer tool and you're just sitting there for months coding this stuff. No one can even, literally yeah. there is no visual element, <laughs> like a log viewer yeah. tool. Like it just doesn't, it's not your cup of tea. Yeah. I remember uh, I was thinking like, I'm going to do this for maybe six months. And then when I release it, it's going to be so huge. <laughs> never happened. I never, I never think about who, I, who I'm going to gonna show it to. Like a few people, a few friends, you're going to go viral or what? And it turned out to be very, very, very difficult. Even now when I have a bunch of, um, of channels and a lot of followers, it's, it's also difficult to make something go viral, not let alone back then I have nothing. I have no audience, no, no channels, no newsletter, no, nothing. It will be impossible. <laughs> to me, one of the most distinctive things about your story is how confident you are. The fact that you jumped ship when you were making 300 MRR with your product and you decided, hey, in the next two years, I'll definitely get to 2000. And, you know, it's one big leap of confidence after the next, but you had this big failure and that was to start your indie hacking career. What made you confident that the next thing would happen that was that was good? So uh, so after that first failure, right, I did not need any confidence to work on the next thing because after that, I feel like I'm going to keep my full time job forever until I can do something with my side project. So Dev Utils were my uh, were, were the second attempt, and I still keep my job, uh, my full time job, and building Dev Utils on the side at night and at weekends. So I was thinking that if Dev Utils doesn't work, I will keep working on the job. I I don't have enough confidence to do anything else. Yeah, so you de so it. I will, yeah, I I I, I it. Yes, and. If, if DevUtils doesn't work for a long time, I may move on to something else, but one thing at a time, you know, because I have a full-time job. So, so if any other people who are looking to quit the job, make sure you have a side project that earns some money first, or at least something that gives you the confidence that you will, you will make it in a, in a year or two. I only quit my job after I after DevUtils uh, was uh, popular on Twitter. I get pop somewhat popular on Twitter. And get some recurring revenue. Revenue, yeah. And besides, I have a lot of advantages, like uh, living cheap in Vietnam, and you know, no, no, no wife, no kids, and stuff. So you posted on any hackers yeah. like a like you got like actually a lot of great posts have done really well, where you kind of just like tell the story of your different products. I think my favorite is is Black Magic. It's the what's the first one you did that was like subscription revenue. You started it before you quit your job, and in the very first like month, you went from like, hey, I made this cool thing for my Twitter profile. I think you made it so like, as you got closer and closer to a thousand followers, like your Twitter profile image would have like a ring that would go around it. And eventually when the ring got to the top yeah. and completed, it would be like, you're at a thousand followers. And you tweeted this. Yeah. The progress bar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The progress bar. And like very few people like yeah. were even following you at the time when people were like, oh, this is kind of cool. And then eventually you like mm. launched it on um, Product Hunt. It got like number one product of the day. Like it was just crushing it. Like everybody loved it and you started charging money for it. Like how did you, how did you do that? Or how did you get it from like, you're someone who has like no followers, no one even cares that you're building this thing to like suddenly you have a ton of followers. Everyone cares. I think someone like tried to buy it from you for $40,000, like a few months after you started, you're like, no, this is hot shit. I'm going to keep it. Like what, <laughs> yeah. like, how did, how did you get to that point? Cause like most people just like build stuff in obscurity and they tweet about it and no one responds like that. It never goes anywhere from there. Yeah, I think uh, the the 1,000 follower milestone is a is a big milestone for me. So before that, I have no idea what I was doing. I uh, what I did is to try to build an audience on Twitter and get traffic to my dev duties, Right? I did not really believe in in black magic at the time. Black magic was a thing, but it's it's a script 
that I built for my own to do the progress bar thing, you know. So, so at that point, I, I already have a thousand followers. So it is something, it's not nothing, it's something, something. So if I can do something, you know, unique and creative and, and can go viral, I can use that 1000 followers as a base to, to make things go viral. And I think the progress bar is uh, one of the things that go viral in the early day. So that progress bar, I try to make my tweet um, somewhat unique and visually compelling. So that uh, I think it, it went viral a few times. And then next, the next thing was the real-time banner. The real-time banner is the thing that uh, is a very special one that uh, it helped me going from 1,000 followers to 5,000 followers in, I think, 48 hours or three days or something. It was a, there was a viral loop in that tweet. And that, that was around the time when I think a few tools that I made for Blackmagic get me viral on Twitter. And, uh, and because of the new audience coming in, I launched a new product and then it, it kind of compound together. Yeah. You know, I love it. It was like it viral, viral loops loop. inside of viral loops because it's like, okay, you're on Twitter where your audience is. Then you're yeah. making tools for yourself on Twitter. Then everyone else like who you tweet about these tools to like cares because they're also on Twitter. Uh, and then like your product itself is viral because like your product when you updated the um, sort of background image. So everybody on Twitter has like, you know, the banner image behind their profile image. And the way Chang, you know, like what mm. his banner product does, it like shows yeah. you your recent followers. So yeah. we made it so like every time somebody follows you, your Twitter banner image will update and show that person's name, which was super viral because then everyone wanted to like follow him so they could see their own name yeah. and photo <laughs> and his banner image. And so he just shot up the follower charts. So it's like probably like the, you're in the best possible environment to grow this app because you're around a bunch of people who like are on Twitter and want these tools for themselves and want to like advertise themselves. So it's like, I don't know if you did that on purpose, but it's genius. Yeah, I, I was messing around a lot with Twitter IBI back then. I was trying to do... I would say abuse <laughs> everything that is allowed by them. I will try to use it <laughs> to do something interactive and fun and creative. So that banner thing was a success. was a huge success. Yeah. And then after that, people want to do that for themselves. So I think, well, okay, why not charge for it? And then I, I, I make from my little script into a SaaS, let them log in by Twitter and then use that script to update their banner and their profile pictures. So uh, they can do the same as, as, as me. And I, I gave it for free uh, for, for a very long time. I let people use it for free, but I tell, I tell them that uh, this is free for now. Then later, later on when I launch it, you will have to pay. So I made that very clear upfront. And because it was free, uh, a lot of people jumped in and tried the product. And, and that's, uh, that's why when I launched it on, on Product Hunt, a lot of people knows about it already. And then they gave on to give their reviews about the product. And, uh, you know, it got popular. You also yeah. seem like you do some non-obvious things with launching on Product Hunt. For example, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I read that you, three days before you launch, you just make a tweet and you say, hey, I'm going to launch on Product Hunt in a few days. And you give your followers the yeah. option <laughs> like, hey, do you want me to notify you when I'm launching? And then <laughs> a lot of them are just like, yes. So, And this isn't rocket science necessarily. It's it's just sort of um, leveraging the fact that people are already your fans. They're already, you know, you're building in public for them. And in a sense, you just straight up just ask them. I think that's so smart. That's so smart. A lot of people, like, they just launch something right after they build it. But I think you should definitely talk to your early customers or early beta users or your early, like, testers of your product and try to incorporate them into your launch. Because I did the same thing with Indie Hackers. Like, yeah. by the time I launched Indie Hackers, I had interviewed, I had, like, emailed, like, 200 people to try to get them to like do interviews with me and like a bunch of them had. So the day, like a week before I launched, I was like, Hey, everybody I've talked to, I'm going to launch next week. You know, do you want to help support the launch? Can I notify you? Same exact thing. And then when you launch, like all these people show up at your back to help you out, to upvote you, et cetera. Whereas everyone else is launching. They've like, nobody even knows who they are. I think that's a very important to get uh, the, the traction very early in the, in the launch. And yeah, this is, uh, this strategy is, is quite old already. Uh, one thing I do new is I ask people to reply in on Twitter and then I will DM them manually. Uh, but people have been doing this for, for a while. Maybe they uh, send an email uh, in the beginning a few days earlier or a week earlier to announce their launch. And then after they launch, uh, people jump in. Yeah. So 
having an audience is a huge advantage. Yeah. Tell me about this like acquisition offer because someone tried to to buy Black Magic. They're like, oh shit, this is killing it. Like, how do I? Yeah. You message Tony and offer him forty thousand dollars. Like, where did that where did that come from, and how did you feel about it? So uh, I posted uh, Black Magic to Micro Aquai just to see how people would pay for it. Oh, okay. You know, so you made I, this I don't, happen. I don't, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I made it happen. I posted it on uh, Micro Aquai and I don't I don't give a price. But Black Magic back then is very different. It doesn't have the Chrome extension yet. And the Chrome extension was the one that uh, the money maker. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I got a few buyers and uh, one of them was very interested and they even gave an offer of 40k. So, it was at 300 something MRR, right? So, if I did the calculation, it was like 10x of AR or, or even more. Yeah. But, yeah, uh, so as, as I said, Blackmagic was not like today. It did not have the Chrome attention. And by the time I had that offer, I already have a few ideas about the Chrome attention already. Mm. I just have not built it yet. So I feel like, okay, this is a very good deal. But if I'm going to sell this, I will have to do something about this Chrome attention idea that I have. And if I do that, I may get into trouble of, you know, you, you already sell that to the other person. Now you do something kind of similar, it's going to be troublesome. So I thought about it and because of that, I did not accept the offer. And also uh, another reason is 40K, okay, it's good, it's, it's high, but after tax and stuff, uh, a fee, I don't think it is, um, let's say 20, uh, 30, 35K left, 35K left, it's not a life-changing money for me. I definitely not needed the cash yeah. right there and then. So it wasn't that important to me. Is that part of the yeah. end game that you have in mind? So you've got a product that's making about six grand, Devutails, Black Magic around 10 grand, Snapper around four grand. Are you looking to to get these projects acquired? Do you have this idea where it's like, no, it'd be dope just to keep growing them and, the, and running them and having this free lifestyle. Do you have like a, an exit strategy in mind? I don't think about it a lot, actually. I am open for sale. It's okay if I, I am totally, uh, it's possibility to sell the product. <laughs> you're like, you're like but, anyone can uh, hit me with any amount. Like, I'm, I'm always open to hear how much money yeah. you're going to give me. <laughs> There's a price for anything. I actually give an, a really brief note for this a while ago because I get so many, so many offers to buy. And I, I, I write a brief note saying that, okay, all of my products are for sale, but it will be $1 million before that. So. <laughs> but back then, it make no money. It make no sense. I, I'd say, okay, if you buy this, you are not buying the product. You're just buying my fun away from me. Right? <laughs> so. right, right, right. Well, of, of any of the products, I think uh, Black Magic is the smartest one not to sell because you had Dev Utils out at the time, but like that one, as you said, you didn't charge a monthly subscription. People would just buy that off the Mac yeah, App Store. Download it once, pay for it once, and that's it. But Black Magic, you're making like yeah. you know a few hundred dollars a month in revenue. I think you said three hundred dollars a month, and yeah, that wasn't that much, but it was recurring. Um, and so you know, why sell yeah. this thing that's recurring revenue, and you know you've got a plan to add the Chrome extension and add more features and make it even better. True. Uh, and now it's like your big, yeah. it's like your big money generator. It makes half of all the money you make comes from Black Magic. It's a ten thousand dollars a month in revenue. Yep. How did it grow so fast? Like most people who are trying to sell a SaaS, don't grow from a couple hundred dollars a month to $10,000 a month in just a year. So like, what's the, what's the black magic behind black magic? <laughs> yeah, I think the, all, the reason is uh, I use Twitter a lot and uh, I have an audience, building an audience on Twitter and the product is also about Twitter. So there's a fit of the audience and the customers. So that's why um, I was able to grow the product without doing any other type of marketing. I tried, but it was not a succeed. I try uh, uh, paid ads and and uh, and blogs and stuff, but in the end, I think it's not sustainable for me as one person. So because it were, it is a product about Twitter, I just keep tweeting, and it should be able to get traction <laughs> as people visit my profile. And another reason is that I think I had created something useful for people, and I keep getting recommendations from other people that are totally not affiliated. Um, kind of a word of mouth marketing. So that's why it, it rolled by itself. As of now, every day I got uh, 50 people, 100 people signing up for Blackmagic. Um, just just stably. So I, and I do nothing uh, for marketing except tweeting. So I think it's a, it's a kind of a 
perfect fit for audience and customer that make it grow so fast and so stable. Between DevUtils, Blackmagic, and Snapper, how many hours a week do you think you put in total? Okay, uh, in the in the beginning, I think it was quite equal between DevUtils and Blackmagic. But uh, later on, Blackmagic took me like 70% of, the, of my time. Yeah, because it is an online product, it's a SaaS product, and it has servers and stuff, run, everything running in background, require more attention, and also customer support. So compared to DevUtils, which is a standalone application where you can download and use it, Blackmagic took me a lot of time. So the same for Snapper as well. Snapper, in the beginning, when I was actively building it, um, I spent two days to build it, and then uh, a few weeks later, I spent maybe a few hours a week to build, and then that's it. Most of my time, like seventy percent, spent on on black magic. And what are you doing? Like and, twenty um, hours a week, like yeah. eighty hours a week? Are you are you working around the clock, or like you know what's what's like a a week in your life in terms of just how much time you spend working on all these projects? Yeah, I look at the numbers recently and uh, it say I work on average four hours a day. Uh, I think six months ago, it about six to eight hours in the beginning when I was, uh, I just uh, quit my job. I think I worked like 10 hours or even more. And mostly, uh, mostly coding, but also not accounting for the time I spend on Twitter. <laughs> so <laughs> right. I browse Twitter a lot. Yeah. Like addicting. Four hours or five hours or whatever the number of hours working for a company is totally different qualitatively than yes. four to 10 hours or whatever working for myself. Like I love working for myself. I have friends who are like, dude, you need more work-life balance. You're working on a Sunday and they're like, oh, I'm so sorry for you. And I'm like, I'm sorry for you. What are you doing? Like dreading <laughs> that Monday is coming around. <laughs> yeah. So true. That's man. true. <laughs> yeah. Does, was there a point where you like realize your revenue where it clicked for you that your revenue is going to like surpass the 10k a month you're making at your job and you're like holy shit like this worked and i i'm never gonna have to go back to work yeah i that happened to me when i was at 5k mrr so 5k mrr is the wall that i set when i quit my job uh even before i quit my job right i was thinking like okay if i get to 5k mrr i will be able to provide for myself for my future family and i can even send money back to my parents that is a perfect point that i will be fully sustainable in Vietnam. <laughs> so uh, when I reach uh, 5K NRR, I feel like I'm free, you know, to totally free. Yeah. But, uh, but now looking back, actually, I did not work less after I reached 5K. I mean, when I reached 5K, I was in, uh, I think I was in the middle of, uh, of a growth curve. It was going up. And at the time I was doing something very special for black magic or something. I could not remember now, but I worked a lot at, uh, at the time. Much until later on when I reached to 7K and then 8K and then 9K, I, uh, I started to, to realize, okay, I, I'm, looks, looks like I'm going into a treadmill of wanting more and more and more and more forever. <laughs> you know, I should, yeah. I should do less. Why am I doing more? <laughs> and sometimes I, I, even though I can dress whenever I want, I feel exhausted because sometimes, uh, it's like addiction, you know, it's, you cannot control yourself. <laughs> so, um, yeah, when, when I reached about 7K or 8K, I was focusing more on forcing myself to relax. <laughs> I, I travel a lot more and I enjoy a lot more time. And also, uh, in the last few months, uh, living near a beach, it has incredibly increased my mental health. <laughs> Just living near mm, a beach yeah. and having a walking yeah. distance to a beach, you know, so good. Yeah. What's yeah. your like ideal lifestyle? Because you have to like everybody has to think about this at some point. Once you hit this point of financial freedom, and you're like, oh shit, I don't have to work for anyone else. I can do whatever I want all day. And people like do fall into these buckets. So some people get under that treadmill, and they're just like, okay, well, I wanted to make 10k. Like now, I want to make 20k. Okay, I made 20k. Yeah. Now I want to make a, I want to make 50. Okay, I made 50k. Like I'm trying to hit a million dollars a year, and they just keep going up and up and up. And like that's just their life. Like these ever increasing goals. And some people are the exact opposite. They're like, okay, I got to my goal. Like now I want to like have fun, right? I want to make a lot of friends. I want to spend my time on the beach, like you were saying. I want to have a really chill life, put everything on autopilot, put everything in the passive mode. And some people are more like creative. Like Peter Levels is like, well, you know what? Like I love 
tinkering on my projects. That's his favorite thing. He just loves doing that. And so he's got a very well-balanced life, but he doesn't have any sort of plan to retire or to try to go for like billions of dollars. So like what bucket do you fall in? I think that the the dream life would be I will only do the stuff that I enjoy, which is uh, somewhat product designing and coding. Right now, I'm still doing that most of the time, but there are still some kind of grunt work like customer support and, you know, mm-hmm. fishing bills and some other boring features that, you know, necessary for, for business, but not fun to work on. So I think the dream life for me is I can start to delegate some of those work for other people that I trust so that I can focus more on innovating new ideas and new products. I was thinking like if I get to, you know, to the point where I can snap a company out of existence to work on some new product, new idea, and if it fail, I would not feel regret for spending the money. I would get into the right. point. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Where can I just experiment with stuff at a larger scale, you know? Right now I can do I can still do that, but I have to do that with my own time. <laughs> so it's kind of costly for me. And because the opportunity cost is increasing for me day by day, because every time I don't work for an, on on uh, Black Magic, it's making money, right? So if I don't work on it, it uh, I am kind of feeling kind of losing money. So I feel like the that that opportunity cost is putting me on a stretch that I need to continue working on this. But I don't really enjoy all of the parts of my daily work. So. Yeah, I still want to reach uh, to 50k and and a million and stuff, but I wanted to do that in a sustainable way and enjoy my life <laughs> at the same time. It's easy to get to a point where you forget like like that fire you have when you're trying to like first become yeah. financially free. Like every day, like you're willing to do all this shit that you don't like doing because you're like I need to make it. And it's like yeah. I think it's really easy eventually, like I'll check in on you in a couple of years to like to lose that fire. It's so easy to be like, uh, you know what? I don't want to do any of the hard things that I used to do. I want I only do the stuff I like to do. Like that's where I am. <laughs> I also only want to do the stuff that I like to do. Uh, but then it becomes harder to do hard things. Like when I think back to like when I talk to people who are like, you know, just crushing it on marketing and sending all these cold emails and um, mm. or you know, like tweeting every single day. I'm like, man, that seems exhausting. But then I'm like, wait, that used to be me, like four years ago and it wasn't that hard. So I feel like there's like a, a yin and a yang. Like Channing, you're always talking about this too, about like how you structured your life to like always want to do hard things. Well, the way that I see it is I think that one approach you could take is to just keep your foot on the gas pedal and just keep growing. But another approach you could take is to take that same fire and ambition and look at other areas of your life that sort of are, are lacking or, you know, like, you know, things that you haven't ever felt that you had the time and the freedom to work on. So for example, with Indie Hackers, we still have a lot of growth to do. So I don't want to make it seem like that's on autopilot, but it's like, you know, I've had the foot on the pedal for many years and like a lot of my immediate friend group is dwindling. So I'm like, well, I'm going to take my ambition and my fire and like build an awesome friend group in New York City, etc. So that's in a way, that's the the way that I like to not let my sense of effort and ambition get dulled by working on things that are not really like giving the same excitement returns that they once did. Mm-hmm. I see. That's, just, uh, that's an interesting approach. Yeah. I mean, you launched Snapper more recently than DevUtils and Blackmagic. Mm-hmm. So like yeah. even after Blackmagic is like doing so well, you've decided to like continue adding new products. And Snapper is really interesting to me. So this is the screenshot tool. It's interesting to me because it's also kind of like DevUtils, your first one. It's not a recurring revenue product. Like Mm. I just pay for it once and that's it. I don't ever have to pay you any money again. Um, Why why go that route? You know, what's it like making these like Mac apps versus like these like websites that charge subscription revenue? And like what are some of the advantages and challenges of of going that route? Because if you decided to do it a second time, like there might, there must be something good about it that you like. Yeah, I think uh, for for apps, Mac OS apps in general, I don't want to pay a subscription cost. So I wouldn't want to sell it to customer like that either. The pay once use forever model that I'm using for DevUtils and, and Snapper is not exactly a lifetime. So when you buy, you will buy that one exact version and you can use it forever. You never have to pay me again. But uh, let's say if, uh, one year later, two years later, you want to update to the latest version, you have to pay a little fee to, to renew it. So that is the model that I find perfect 
for macOS app and a lot of other apps are using the same model. If you are into macOS app, uh, you know a few popular apps like Sketch, the design app. It used to be on that model. The IntelliJ, um, the IDE app for developers, also the same model. Table Plus, Proximan, Nova app, all coming from that same model because that is the only way that can give the customer a lifetime license and also having a sustainable business. So that's good. About the macOS app, I think uh, there are a lot of web apps these days. And if I want to make a difference, I'm going to do something different. So macOS app is something that one can build to, to deliver a better experience for the users. So that's what I'm, I was trying to focus on. Yeah. Yeah, you just posted about how you launched Snapper. And mm. you've already made, like, I think... $4,200 in earnings. Was that just like on your launch day or is that like in the last month or so? Yes, just for the launch day. In this month, I already made like seven, uh, $8,000 for this month. And uh, in the month earlier, I think I made like 10K because uh, I was selling early bird sale. So when I uh, when the first version came out, I already letting people use for free. But I, but I uh, tell people that if you want to buy it early now, you can get very, very cheap. So uh, I was able to sell like uh, 10K on Gumroad and on Pardo uh, in total. So um, it's the first app that I built that have a big audience, um, a customer base, you know. DevGTOs is only for developers, yeah. but the screenshot too, everyone can use it. So I think yeah, it's get, it got more potential. It got more, more potential. <laughs> but is it is it harder to sell stuff like... Because you're so used to Twitter, which you have, you have this feedback loop where, okay, all of your audience is on Twitter. Um, yeah. But like a screenshot tool, it's like, well, it's in the app store. It's not as discoverable. It's probably harder for you to like keep tweeting about it and stuff. What's the difference between marketing and growing that app versus growing a Twitter app? So for Snapper, I use it a lot. So uh, when before I use Snapper, right, I have a combination of three different tools to make that same screenshot. And it took me a lot of time, mm. but I still have to, I still do it because I, I find it very beautiful. So uh, before Snapper, I, I did that. And a lot of people asked me, how did you make this happen? How, how did you make a screenshot look beautiful like this? So I keep having to answer to people again and again and again how I did it. Hmm. So I feel out if I make a, an app for this, I will be able to market it easily, authentically when people ask me how I did this. I just say, I will use Snapper. <laughs> and that's how I... I that's how I was thinking about marketing the product. So it will be word of mouth marketing from me. <laughs> and um, actually, I, I was not very concerned about the, the growth of Snapper because it's a macOS app, right? I built it for me. So even if it doesn't get any traction, I will still use it myself. And um, I only spend like a few days on it. I, I don't have a lot to lose and I save my, my time. So even yes. if it doesn't, it, it doesn't make any money for me. I'm okay with that, you know. So uh, everything comes as a bonus for me. Um, it is a tiny bit of built-in marketing, right, in the form of if you have the free version, you don't want to pay for it, then it has like a whatever is napper.com watermark. Yes, yes, yes. That yeah, is it's got that viral loop built into it. Yeah, the watermark thing. I don't think a lot of people will use that. <laughs> Um, people kind of hit. Yeah, I, I turned it off immediately. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. If, if you if you pay for it, you're gonna get rid of that. But like, yeah. You know, in a, in a yeah. sense, like you're hoping for like a couple of cheapskates who might at least like do some free marketing for you. Yeah, I kind of hope that would be a marketing loop, but I don't think so. Many many people care about design; oh. they will care about the watermark, so they, they yeah, will try to true. turn it off. Yeah. I think it's naturally viral though, because when I you share something beautiful with other people, um, they mm. usually ask you how you made it. And screenshots are something that people share. So every time I take a screenshot now, it's got this cool gradient background and I'll send it to my friends. I'll send it to um, like anyone I'm working on a project with. And like a good percentage of the time, once I've sent like two or three screenshots, they'll figure out like, oh, every screenshot I take looks like this. And they'll ask me how I did it. And yeah. I say, oh, just check out Snapper. And so it's got yeah. like this kind of, it's like you're building something that people naturally want to show to other people. Yes. It's very visual. Only if, if it is beautiful that people will ask how you did it. So I think that uh, that's something that I can uh, that I was able to unlock, and then uh, hopefully that will drive more people to to be aware of the of the app. Yeah, in a way, this is like a sneaky benefit of these, you know, pay once, own forever kinds of products. 
you made a post on our, our forum, whatever, a couple of weeks ago. And it was like, Hey, you know, here's how I'm, you know, defying all of the startup, not all the startup advice to only focus on one product. And I've got three separate products. They're making 18 grand a month. Um, and since snapper doesn't really require a lot of your continual time. Yes. In theory, I could imagine like over the next 10 years, you ballooning up to having like seven products, right? As long as they're not all um, subscription based. And it's like, yeah, no, I only spend time working on two or three of them, right? Yeah, but they're all making absolutely. money. Absolutely. I, I have known a lot of people who make a bunch of apps, like tens or even hundreds. They don't need much maintenance. It just keep growing and bringing revenue. So apps is, is a way. And it's, even though it's one-time budget, it doesn't require much of your time, which is... I think more valuable. What do you? Why do you think your uh, your approach to building in public is so successful? Because I'm like just scrolling through your Twitter, dude, and you've got so many tweets, and <laughs> I know a ton of people who build in public, and it's like it's not a new thing, right? People have been building in public for years and years and years to the point where now it's almost like passe. It's like you know you're just one of a million indie hackers tweeting about your revenue and your marketing strategies, but for you, like it works. Like you're getting a ton of likes. Your follower count is blown up. Why do you think it's working for you and it doesn't work for so many other people? I find that uh, even though many people are doing the same thing in building public as me, they did not get the, the attraction. And I talk about it a lot. Um, in conclusion, I think there's something about the creativity that uh, of the stuff that I tweet that trigger people to be curious about the stuff that, that I do. So... Let's let's take an, an example when the early days when I have only a few hundred followers, I built something fun with JavaScript, uh, a little water simulation. So it was it was something just I do just for fun, but because it was so strange and so creative and and it looked so fun, got people attention. So like later on when I build in public, I I feel like no matter what I do, it has to be special. It has to be something that people have never seen anywhere or something that make them curious or something they was, wasn't able to do before, th- then the tweet will get attention. So that is something I think will be difficult to get for other people. Uh, Dead Utils is a boring product, but Blackmagic and Snapper is kind of interesting because it touches on the market where I don't think there's anything exist like that before. It makes people curious about the product and then they want to try. Uh, the fact about I build I build Mac OS app also contributed to it, I think. Um, people use web app too much. Like there are already, already a lot of web apps and uh, something on your Mac OS it will be more engaging and and, and, and uh, more beautiful. And uh, I, think that, I think they like it more. <laughs> It's there's no coincidence that I mean probably the main place to build in public is on Twitter, but if everyone building in public on Twitter is then linking back to their website or they're linking back to their app or they're linking to their newsletter, there's extra effort that people have to go through to see what they're doing. But if you are building mm-hmm. in public and the thing that you're building on Twitter is a Twitter product and everyone mm-hmm. sees your awesome profile and they see this dope like banner like it's just sort of this direct demo then there's a tremendous amount of public credibility that you have, right? Everyone can kind of see themselves using that product and benefiting from it. Yeah, I I heavily invested in Twitter, totally invested in it's everything. So everything I, I do, I, I share it on Twitter, yeah. Well, it's smart. I mean, you've got such a variety too, because it's like if I follow your Twitter, I can. it's not just like one thing. It's like you've got three or four different products that you tweet about. Almost all of them are visual, so there's cool stuff to look at. And mm-hmm. as like a follower, I'm like, I'm also your user. So you're like tweeting about like stuff that like is relevant to me because I'm like using your products. Then you're yeah. also tweeting about your progress as an indie hacker, celebrating your successes, asking for help. You're like, hey, what's the best subreddit to post Snapper in? And hey, I'm going to launch, going to do this. So you're like really engaging. And it's just like a huge variety of stuff. And so yeah. there's like you've given people like half a dozen reasons to follow you. As compared to someone who's just like working on one thing and just tweeting about that one thing all the time, it's like, well, now I only have one reason to follow you, and if I get bored, yeah, I'm not keep coming back. I also really like what you said that you have a big focus on making things that are fun. Tony, have you ever heard of absurd trolley problems? 
there's a new uh, website coming out for that, right? Interactive website, a new fun, new, yeah. new did yeah. that, yeah. right? Nailed that fun. <laughs> he yeah. was, yeah. he Nailed was that, famous. Fun. Yes, that was fun. I yeah. did that. And like, that's awesome. Yeah, absurd yeah. Pro probably problems. It's, you know, it's just this old philosophical problem where, you know, you, you see a trolley going, it's going to kill three people, but you can pull the lever and then it'll only kill one person, but then you have to sort of own the consequences. In any case, he took this philosophical problem and he made it this fun game. And yeah. the cool thing about this is that it went so viral that a friend of mine who doesn't even go to Hacker News sent it to me. He's not like that techie, but he's like, dude, this, this, this game is awesome. <laughs> and then I saw it and then I wanted to know every other thing that this Neil guy built. So I'm like, browsing his website i'm playing all these different games and i'm like you know i want to see what he's doing on twitter and so i think there's such a huge yeah. untapped benefit of like you know instead of just going for what's just you know useful what can i make money on every now and then just letting your hair down and building fun games well, like it's also yeah. fun to build those things you can yeah. you can add any constraint you want to to any of your work as an indie hacker you can say i'm going to be super fun or everything's going to look super well designed or everything's going to be like really simple right and it doesn't have to only be about like, oh, how do I make money? But it can be about any of these other things where you put your personality or your own sort of touch onto what you do. And I think that like when people do that, it just makes it much, much more fun for them to be indie hackers. But also it makes their product stand out. Like yeah. every Tony Den product is like very, like obviously from you, it's got your touch on it. Every product from Peter Levels is like got emojis all over it. It's like a very like Peter <laughs> so Levels-esque, you know. Like you can always tell. Yes. And then you see... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you can always guess. And then you can yes. see other products where people are like ripping you guys off, you know, or like people mm. don't have their own vision or their own interest. They haven't thought about like what they want to put into their own products. And so they copy Peter Levels or something. But when it's like you or Neil or Peter or anyone who's got like their own touch, you seem like you're having a really good time. What's your parting advice for indie hackers listening to this? What's something that you've learned in your journey that they might not, you know, have heard somewhere else that you think they should take away? Yeah, uh, one thing is to focus on solving the problems that they are experienced by themselves. And uh, even better if they are the users for their own product. So as an, as an indie hacker, uh, you don't have a lot of resources as a, as a big company. So that if you are the user of your own product, you get an, a huge advantage of having a look inside the product and having the insights of the problems. So always try to look for for problems around you and solve those problems solve your own problems tony den thanks a ton for uh for joining us thank you for having me thank you so much can you let listeners know where to go to find out more about what you're up to like your twitter your websites etc uh that would be tonyden.com my website uh, and in there you will be you'll be able to see my newsletter and my twitter and everything else about me <laughs> cool thanks again